Well, good morning, family. How are you? How are you? Good, all right. It is good to be with you today. We had a great week here last week. I loved kicking off the new year with so many of you, and it's great to see so many people back on campus today, so many bright, smiley faces. Great to see so many of you online. We've had a great online presence today. It's just encouraging to begin the year that way. And if you weren't able to join with us this past week, I hope that you have been able to watch the message during the week, or at least watch the the video clip that we've sent out, we've put them on social media, we emailed them out to many of you. I hope you've been able to watch that because last week, we kind of set the vision and the tone for who we want to be this year. That this year, really it's the same that we are every year, but we're getting more intentional about being a people who pursue the one and only Lord Jesus and pursue everyone else to help them connect to him. What we want to cultivate in ourselves and in our church is a mentality for each one to reach one for the glory of the one. And I hope you will join me on that journey this year because there is so much that God has in store for us and I'm really looking forward to the joy of serving Jesus alongside of you and pursuing him alongside of you this year. But before we get to that, I just want to acknowledge that, that I know that our church leaders know that 2022 wasn't necessarily a year of complete joy for all of us. That there were some moments along the way for many of us, my family included, when we lost my mom, that there was some time of grief in the last year. And so if you are one of those people who has lost someone you love, lost someone who is near to you, or you've experienced grief in some significant way, even if it was years ago, but you're still trying to process, you're still hungry for a restoration of hope in your life, I'm gonna encourage you to participate in our ministry called Grief Share. It's kicking off in a couple weeks on Thursday night, January 19th. And it is a, a group environment to help you process the pain and to find hope and to just be able to grieve in a way that helps you move forward. So if you need that, I encourage you, you can sign up for that online. You can show up at the Next Steps counter, which uh, is just to the right as you exit the, the uh, service, uh, at the end of service, and you can sign up for that there. Now, for some of you, maybe the grief is a little bit different. Uh, maybe your grief comes with your finances. And I know that for the last year, it's been kind of a tumultuous time for some people. Maybe you're trying to make sense of what to do with your money, how to make money. Maybe it always seems like there's more month left at the end of your money. And, and maybe that's not you. Maybe you've managed your money quite well, and you're just wondering if there's a way to be even better at it. Well, we have a ministry that I strongly encourage all of us to participate in with the time of right, called Financial Peace University. We have great teachers for this, great leaders, uh, this nine-week group environment. Years ago, my wife and I participated in Financial Peace University. We call it FPU for short. Uh, we participated in FPU because we were doing pretty good with our money. Uh, we weren't in a, in a crisis or a challenge, but we kept having this nagging question, could we be doing better? Could we be doing better with saving for retirement, with taking care of the things that we want to take care of, with being generous with honoring God with our finances. And we participated in Financial Peace University and we still operate by those principles today. It was a life-changing and life-shaping course for us. I strongly encourage you to participate in that if you have not before. So Grief Share and FU will both be kicking off right here on campus Thursday, January 19th. You can sign up for both of those in the lobby and um, I encourage you to do so. Now, for us, as we pursue Jesus together, 
I also have another thing I want to make sure you're aware of. This year, to guide us in our journey of pursuing Jesus together, we're going to use Mark Moore's devotional, Quest 52, which is a fantastic discipleship resource. And we have copies of this available for you this week out in the lobby, uh, right as you exit through the main doors. It's at the stone wall in front of us. Now, I know I said that last week, and we ran out of copies faster than I could get out of this room. So I apologize for that. We knew we had limited copies. The... um, that bad snowstorm that hit us a few weeks ago, as it shut down everything else, it shut down our shipment of these books. But we have them here today. We have enough of them here today. And so I strongly encourage you to pick up a copy for yourself and pick up a copy for a friend or two. In fact, the more you get, the, the better the deal is. One for 10, two for 15, three for 20. Uh, we saw people walking out well, after last service with armfuls of these to invite their friends to join them in the journey, to provide one for their family members, I encourage you to do the same. It really is a great resource. It, it provides some guided Bible reading for us. It helps us dig into God's word, understand his word. It also gives us discussion questions to talk about what we're reading and help us understand that and connect with others and application ideas to help us put into practice the things that we're engaging with. And so you can pick up your copy today and you can pick up a copy for your friend, even if they don't believe it. In fact, especially if they don't believe, I encourage you to pick one up for them and just invite them to take a look at who Jesus is and what Jesus says about them and see if Jesus might not change their life. Because we're convinced, I'm convinced, that that's what happens. You give Jesus a year and he will change your life. You give Jesus a year of your life, he'll change your life forever. And I don't just mean forever until you die. I mean the forever, forever. Like you go through the grave and you walk in glory with him forever and ever. You give Jesus a year, he will change your life. So as we begin this 52-week journey in the pursuit of Jesus, we're gonna begin at the beginning. It just makes sense. It means we need to revisit where we've been recently, going back to what we did uh, last month and taking a look, uh, kind of a fresh look, a different look at the Christmas story. And I know that feels like we're going the wrong direction, but we're gonna be taking a little bit of a look at the Christmas story today and with kind of a fresh lens, fresh eyes. But before we get to that, let me just ask, right? We're in the new year now. How many of you still have your Christmas decorations up? How many of you still have your Christmas tree up? Get those hands up high, you know, raise them high. If you're joining us online, you can chime in online. Just say, yeah, I got it up. So a lot of you still have your Christmas decorations. How many of you took your Christmas decorations, took the tree down this past week after New Year's Day? How many of you took it down this past week? All right, get your hands up. How many of you did the tree come down between Christmas and New Year? All right, a lot of you. How many of you never would have put any Christmas decorations up in the first place if it weren't for the people you live with? Any of those? All right, for those of you, you're Scrooge, all right? I just got it, we got it like, it's just, you're Scrooges. Um, No, just kidding. Now for me, I love Christmas. I'm the decorator in the family. And I mean, I, you know, I love putting the stuff up and getting all the Christmas stuff out, decorating the house. And, and I love Christmas. And it's always a sad day for me when the tree comes down. And I know, I know, I know, it's got to come down eventually. But it just always seems like it comes down way too soon. In the Fitz home, I used to boycott that day. My kids still do. I boycotted because it was sad for me. I think the kids boycotted just because they didn't want to do any of the work to put the stuff away. But 
It's still kind of the sad day in the home, but I know like, I need to be a good husband, help my wife, so we take it down. But I, I talk her in every year, like, wait, at least just give me New Year's Day, and, and then we take down after that. You know? So it's funny, though, because as much as I hate to see the decorations come down, I was also the guy who always hated to see Chris's decorations go up too soon. Now, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, it would be Labor Day, and I'm thinking, all right, man, I got shorts and flip-flops and a t-shirt on. I'm walking into the hardware store, Labor Day weekend, getting ready to tackle some outdoor projects at the house, and I walk in, and there's Christmas music, and they're trying to sell me Santa's newest creation, and I'm like, whoa, 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 did I just time warp to, like, December in Florida, right? I was just like, what are they doing? We haven't even, like, made it through Labor Day, and there's Christmas stuff in the stores, And as much as I resist the commercialization of Christmas, I've learned to embrace, at least in some small way, and appreciate the reminder of what Christmas is about. That the Christmas story wasn't just a once and done birth in a manger, all right, let's pack it up and move on. But that God is with us. The point of Christmas is that God came to be with us. And so now, when I see Christmas decorations up, when I drive west on 64 and I go past the signs for Santa Claus, Indiana, I'm, I'm kind of reminded like, oh yeah, God is with us. There, there's something that I, I've learned to redeem it at least a little bit and allow it to be restored to me, to restore the hope, the vision, the joy of what Christmas is throughout the year. Because I think if we, if we move past that too soon, we miss something significant. So often, Christmas becomes about all the hoopla, and we make a big deal of of the birth of Jesus for a season, for a moment, and then we tear down the decorations, we pack them in a box, we shove them in a closet, we jump into the new year, we move forward like Christmas is a thing in the past, but we miss the fact that Christmas initiates something. It it wasn't just a, a moment, it was a moment that initiated a movement, it initiated a change in history because that baby who was born in the manger grew up to be a man who claimed to be God, claimed to be God with us. And, and you know, Mark Moore in his devotional Quest 52 begins the whole thing with this question, is Jesus God and is God Jesus? And that's a great question for us to begin with. Because there's been lots of people throughout history who have made the claim to be God. Pharaohs of Egypt claimed to be God. Emperors in China claimed to be God. Emperors of Japan had claimed to be God. Emperors of Rome claimed divine status. The priests of the Aztec and the Incas claimed divine godlike status. Many Hindus have claimed to be God. Kings throughout history have claimed divine status. Even many cult leaders and religious leaders in our most recent history still claim divine status. People like David Koresh, Jim Jones, there's still people today who claim to be God. And many of us would look at a person who says they're God and we write them off as delusional, as crazy. But yet many of these people have a following and some of them have a very substantial following. But what sets Jesus apart from all these other people? What makes Jesus claim to be God different than all these other people who claimed to be God? Well, one of the things that sets Jesus apart is that for all those other people and all those other cultures, they believed in many gods. 
So someone who claimed to be God claimed to be one God of many gods. And while being a God in one of those cultures meant you had more power, your power is still limited because you were only God of certain things, a God of a certain segment of nature, maybe the God of fire or the God of fertility or the God of whatever. You know, but maybe you were just the God of a certain group of people, but you weren't the universal God over all things. So to claim to be God was an elevation, but there were still limits to it. But that's not the way it was for Jesus, because Jesus comes along, and he doesn't claim to be just one of many gods. He claims to be the one and only God. Jesus claims to be the true God. So Jesus was Jewish, and the Jewish people believed that there is only one God. In fact, this is found in the Shema, the, the statement of faith, kind of the central statement of faith for Jewish people found in Deuteronomy chapter six. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is only one God. So they believed in just one God. Jesus would have believed in just one God. And the Jewish picture of God was that the one and only God was powerful, all powerful, all knowing, everywhere present, that he was the uncreated creator of everything else, and that by his own power, he sustained and maintained everything he created in this universe, that he is alone the creator, that he is without beginning or end, that he is without limits, he's without competition, and this is who Jesus claimed to be. Now, now some people, you know, to the, the, might say, well, Jesus never really said, I am God. Uh, we're going to look at some of his claims in a moment, and what we find is that in the Jewish culture, Jesus' claims were unmistakable to the Jewish people that he has claimed to be God. And because Jesus appeared to them as a mere man, his unmistakable claims for him to be God were also unforgivable claims because that's blasphemy, because they didn't believe he was God. In fact, that's eventually why they crucified him. To them, it was blasphemy. In fact, Jesus' friend John, his disciple, shares this in his gospel, that there was once a moment when Jesus healed a, a man at Bethesda. And he healed the man on the Sabbath. And, and the rule was, the religious rule was, you couldn't do any work on the Sabbath. And the Jewish religious leaders had taken this so far to say you could not even heal people. Like they had twisted the word to make it more about the law than the law serving the people. And so even to do good, even to heal somebody, to give someone life was work and you weren't supposed to do that. So Jesus heals this guy on the Sabbath and then this is what happens. The Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. But Jesus replied, my father is always working and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him, for he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his father, thereby making himself equal with God. It was an unmistakable claim, and that claim was worthy of the death penalty in their culture. There was another time when Jesus was discussing his identity with religious leaders, and they asked kind of pointedly, well, who are you? And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. Now, now this statement, before Abraham was born, that, that's a problematic statement because Abraham lived centuries before Jesus. And these guys are thinking, whoa, 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 you, you a mere man, you're not even 50 years old and you're claiming to have existed before Abraham. Like, whoa, that doesn't make sense. But the bigger problem was this I am statement because this statement is, is weighty. 
When, when God spoke to Moses through the burning bush in the Old Testament and said, Mo, I want you to go back to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. Mo was reluctant. He's like, nah, you got the wrong dude. It's been 40 years since I've been there. And he said, no, no, I want you to go tell the Egyptian ruler to let the Israelites go, to set them free. And Moses like argues with God and finally he's like, all right, fine, I'm on board. Uh, one, one more thing though, God, all right, I'll go, but you got to tell me, like I'm going to wander onto the scene and like who am I? They're going to wonder who sent me. So who am I supposed to tell them sent me? Like the fiery bush? Like what am I supposed to say? And God says, tell them the I am sent you. This statement, it's ambiguous. It's kind of vague. It's, it's loaded. You study the Hebrew language, and what you find is we don't really know how to unpack this statement. It, it means something of I am who I am. I am who I say I am. I am the one who's always been. I am and I always will be. I am the one. What we get from this is the understanding is we've always understood it from that moment that what God said to Moses in that moment was, Moses, you can't comprehend all who I am. I am the one and only. And so when Jesus says, I am, the way he says it, it's not just like us using the to be verb and saying, oh, I am whatever. No, no, no. Jesus is using a statement in Greek that ties to the Hebrew, that ties to that moment of God declaring who he is. Jesus claims to be God in this moment. And we see that playing out because at that point, they picked up stones to throw at him. Now, let let me just help, help us understand this. Um, language changes over time, right? Language is a bit fluid. To be stoned today is not what it meant to be stoned in Jesus' day, all right? Well, we're not talking a hippie growing some pot on his land, growing some weed and getting high, right? It's like to be stoned then isn't getting high. To be stoned means death penalty. They're going to pick up stones. They're going to pick up rocks and throw them at you until you die. Sounds like a great way to go. So at that point, they picked up stones to throw at Jesus, but Jesus was hidden from them and left the temple. Now, I just want to encourage you, as you read through the stories of Jesus, as you read through the Gospels, and as you join me on this journey to get to know Jesus better, and we read through, you're going to find that there's humor in the scriptures. There's humor in the Bible. There's humor in Jesus. If you've ever seen the movie Mr. Deeds, Jesus reminds me in a little bit of the butler, do not underestimate my sneakiness. Like, you get this little picture of sneaky Jesus when they are gonna kill him and he sneaks him and like, wait, where'd he go? And this happens more than once. But they were gonna kill him, why? Because he claimed to be God. We see another instance, Mark records in his gospel, his telling of Jesus' life, that there was a moment when a man who had been paralyzed, who was paralyzed for years, His friends carried this paralyzed man on a mat, brought him to Jesus. In fact, they went through quite a bit to get him to Jesus. And they finally bring him to Jesus. And Jesus looks at this paralyzed man. And seeing their faith, the faith of this man and his friends, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. Which is exactly what the paralyzed guy wanted to hear, right? No, he wants to hear, hey, you're healed. He's like, whoa, thanks for fixing my sin issue, but can I walk? Like, you're supposed to be this great healer. And so, seeing this, some of the teachers of religious law were sitting there, and they thought to themselves, what in the world did he just say? No, no, I didn't hear him say that. He didn't go there, did he? Because, no, no, that's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. 
What's Jesus doing telling this guy his sins are forgiven? Like, that's, no, you can't do that, Jesus. And Jesus knew that they were thinking that. He saw it on their face, Jesus being Jesus. He knew they were thinking what they were thinking. And he says, oh, oh I get what you're thinking. Only God can do that. So which is easier, to tell somebody their sins are forgiven or to actually demonstrate with power that you have the power to do so? Which is easier, to tell this guy his sins are forgiven or to tell the dude that he's healed? So to prove to you that I am who I am, he looks at the guy and says, brother, stand up, grab your mat, and walk home. The dude stands up, grabs his mat, and the people make a way for him to walk out. Jesus demonstrates with power that he is who he says he is. He says, I heal your sickness and I forgive your sins. On another occasion, Jesus was talking with some people about his identity and he he said this, he said, my sheep listen to my voice. Now when Jesus is talking about sheep, he's speaking metaphorically. He's not actually a shepherd with a staff out in the field with a bunch of little running around. No, he's talking about his followers, us, right? So Jesus is talking about his people. My sheep, my people listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Now who but God can give eternal life? And they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. For my Father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. Once again, the people picked up stones to kill him. Uh Uh-oh. They want to kill Jesus for this. And so Jesus looks at him, and they replied. It says, at my Father's direction, I've done many good works. For which one of those are you going to stone me? And they replied, no, no, no. We're not killing you for any good work you've done but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Now, once again, Jesus gets away from them at that point. His time had not yet come. His ministry was not yet finished. But there came a moment when Jesus allowed himself to be arrested by the Jewish authorities, and then they crucified him. And the reason? Nobody crucifies somebody who's just a good man. Nobody crucifies somebody just because they're prophetic. They crucified him because he claimed to be God. Now, the beautiful part of the story is just three days after the crucifixion, there was a resurrection, and Jesus proved good on his claims. He walked out of that grave, breath in his nostrils, strength over death. He walked out victorious. That's what we celebrate. Now, we'll actually look more in depth at that later in this series, later in the year, but you need to know history substantiates, verifies the resurrection. So Jesus comes back to life after that. Of all the people in history who've claimed to be God, only one of them actually walked out of a grave alive after he was dead. Jesus claimed to be God. His enemies acknowledged that he was the son of God. His Followers affirmed that he was God's son. And so of all the options, of all the people who've ever claimed to be God, I don't know about you, but as for me, I'm going with that guy. I'm siding with the guy who claimed to be God and then defeated death and walked out of a tomb after he was dead as he was alive again. Like, that's who I'm gonna go with. I don't know about you, but that makes sense to me. So let's keep this in perspective, though. Jesus didn't do this for himself. Like Jesus didn't need to flex his God muscles and prove himself 
over his enemies. If all this was was a divine power show, if all this was was a divine flex, a muscle show of I'm the strong God, Jesus would have done this differently. He never would have needed to wrap himself in flesh and come in humility in a manger. He never would have needed to die on a cross. In fact, he would have just circumvented all that and just laid some holy smackdown on these people. He would have wiped them out with a flood. He'd have brought down some fire from heaven. He'd have called the angel armies and just boom, they're done. So that wasn't his purpose. So the whole point of Jesus coming to the manger in the first place, the whole purpose of Jesus wrapping himself in flesh as one of us, walking with us, for us. Jesus being arrested and crucified and then resurrecting. That was for us. He, he did that for us. Jesus' friend John said this of Jesus John chapter one. He says, from his abundance, we have received one gracious blessing after another. The greatest blessing among them, salvation, reconnection with God. For the law was given through Moses, the 10 commandments back in the day. But God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God. Well, he's near to the Father's heart and he has revealed God to us. Jesus came to show us what God is like. He, he revealed what God is like. Jesus came and he showed us that amongst other things, God is a God who's willing to suffer and he suffers for us on our behalf. Jesus is the only God who suffers for his people, but he doesn't only suffer for his people, he also suffers for his enemies in an attempt to turn his enemies to friends, to invite them into the family. Jesus willingly takes the cross for us. John, again writing in his gospel, talks about a different John. The next day, John, now this is you got John the author, who's Jesus' friend, follower, disciple. You have John that he's talking about, who's John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, who's prophetic, who shows up under the scene after spending time out in the desert, and he shows up, and he begins preaching, repent, the time is near, the Holy One of God is about to come. He's like the, the warm-up act at the, at the big rock show. Jesus is the headliner. John's the warm-up act, getting everybody ready for what's coming. He says, just get ready. So the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look! Look, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, now this statement is pretty significant because lambs were used in sacrifice. If you wanted to make amends with God, you would take your sacrifice to the priest at the temple. And oftentimes you would take a lamb, a pure lamb without blemish. And, and that was your way of saying this is my act of repentance, of remorse, of sorrow, of sadness. This is my act of apology, God, because I've sinned against you, so I make this sacrifice to be right with you. This is restitution. But the Lamb of God is not like that. That's not a sacrifice we make to get right with God. That's a sacrifice God made to get us right with him. John testifies, he goes on, I saw the Holy Spirit descend like a dove from heaven and rest upon Jesus. It says, at the time, I didn't know he was the one, but when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He is the one. He said, I saw this happen to Jesus, so I testify that he is the chosen one of God. 
Jesus is the chosen one of God. Chosen for what? Chosen to be the sacrifice. To take our sin guilt and forgive us. To make a way for us to get to God. To restore a way to God. You know, all those other gods I mentioned earlier, they're all dependent upon humans. They were dependent upon what we would sacrifice for them. They needed our sacrifices like fuel, like to fill their bellies, to, to give them something so they could act on our behalf or act on their behalf. Those, the, those gods needed you know, us to bring offerings and sacrifices, sacrifices that matter to us, sometimes sacrifices of us, actual human sacrifice. All those other gods demanded that. They need from us, but not Yahweh, not the God of the Bible. He is not dependent upon us. He's not dependent upon our sacrifice. So all the sacrifices that God would ask us to give to him, the sacrifice of time, the sacrifice of our talents, the sacrifice of our our treasures and our monies and what we have that we would sacrifice to give to someone else, to serve someone else, to spend time loving someone else who might be difficult to love. Whatever sacrifice God asks of us is not for God. He doesn't need it. It's actually for us. It's to remind us that we are not God. It's to remind us that God alone is God and we are dependent upon him. It's to remind us to look beyond ourselves and look to God because not many of us would just come right out and say, I'm God. Like not in those terms, but we do say that. I mean, that's essentially what we say. And we say, I want you to let me do whatever I want to do the way I want to do it. Why? Because I'm God. I want you to let me believe whatever I want to believe because I'm God. I want you to serve me because I'm God. I want you to love me the way I want to be loved because I'm God. I want you to do for me what I want you to do for me. I want you to let me think what I want to think and say what I want to say and do what I want to do and believe what I want to believe and become what I want to become. Why? Because I'm God. And our sacrifice that God would invite us to offer to him is like the tree in the garden at the beginning to remind us that we are created thing and we are not God and we need God. And we need his sacrifice to save us. And his sacrifice is the only one that can. So whatever sacrifice God invites us to offer is to remind us that he's already offered the sacrifice for us. See, God doesn't just ask for sacrifice from us. He's the God who sacrifices willingly himself for us. So Jesus showed us that God is a God who's willing to sacrifice for us. And he showed us also that he's willing to sacrifice for us because God loves us. God is love. He does what's best for us. He loves us more than we could even love ourselves. Other gods might love their own, but our God, the God, the only one true God, loves everyone. He he loves the unlovable. He loves the infidel and the outsider. Even when we are stuck in our sin and we are enjoying the rebellion of our sin, Scripture tells us that he, even in that moment, died for us. Even from the cross, Jesus asked forgiveness from the Father. Father, forgive them because they don't even understand all they're doing. He's asking forgiveness for the very ones who are torturing him, crucifying him, murdering him. God, forgive them. They just don't quite get it. He's the only one who loves like that. Jesus reveals that God is a God who sacrifices, that God is a God who loves, and that God is the God who is near. 
now, always, forever. He's present with us. He pursues us. Jesus came to pursue us. He came into this world. He lived as one of us, for us, to be near to us. Tempted in every way we're tempted. Feeling the feelings that we feel. Experiencing the limitations we have. He gets us. Because he's near to us and he's one of us. And he's still near to us. Near in a different way. The Holy Spirit enters in and fills us to lead us, guide us, guard us, provide for us, remind us of truth, to lead us in the way of holiness. God is still present amongst us. Never leave us, never forsake us, never abandon us. And as one of us, Jesus didn't just show us what God was like. He showed us what we can be like. He, he revealed the wholeness of God, the perfection of God, Perfect in love, compassion, truth, and mercy. But he also showed us what we can be like. A life of, of true humanity. A life empty of sin and full of holiness, full of the Holy Spirit. He showed us what we can be like, what we can aspire to. And Jesus could show us that because he was like us. So, so friend, here's my challenge for you this week. is to take just even one night. And practice being present with others the way God is present with you. And practice getting present with them, being with them. Missionary Jim Elliott once said, wherever you are, be all there. So what would it look like if we were actually to be present with others and, and remove the distractions? What, what, what might we communicate? Might we communicate to them that they matter to us, that, that our agenda is centered on them, for them, that, that they have our attention? that we care, that we're actually interested in them. What might we learn if we remove the distractions and we get present? What might we hear? What might we experience? What blessing might we be able to give? What blessing might we receive by being present with others without distraction? So here's the challenge this week is take one night, put the phone away, turn off the TV, turn off the notifications, turn off the computers, Turn off the noise. Leave the lights on. Turn off all the other distractions. And turn your attention onto the ones you're with. Fully engage. Look them in the eye. Ask them questions. And listen for the answers. Maybe play a game together. Maybe just share a meal undistracted with one another. Take just one night. And then see how that goes. My guess is you'll want to do it more than once. My guess is the blessings that come your way, my confidence is you're going to want to do that again. And for those of you who live alone, invite somebody over. Invite yourself over. Force it upon them. And just be present. And let me suggest one more thing, maybe the most important thing. And that's to spend time in the presence of Jesus every day. Undistracted time with God. Those of you who participated in Rooted, any Rooted folks? Yeah, man. You learned the rhythm of what I call chair time. Daily time with God. 15 minutes with God every day. Just use this to guide you. Take some time. Wake up 15 minutes earlier. Set your alarm. Get some time to just read, to pray, to, to read God's word, to read through the devotional, 
to listen to God's voice. Take some time to get present with the one who left the glory of heaven and entered this world through a manger and climbed up on a cross to be present with you. Get some time to do that. And as you spend time in the presence of Jesus every day, keep looking. Keep looking. You know, when John the Baptist, John the Immerser, pointed that Jesus was coming, he didn't say, look and behave. He didn't say, behave right because Jesus is coming. He didn't say, believe Jesus is coming. He just simply said, look, 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 there he is. It begins with a look. So just spend time looking into the claims. Spend time looking into Jesus' words. Spend time looking into his life. Spend time looking into what he did, what he said, what others said of him, what he says of you. And invite a friend to do the same. Invite a friend to join you in this pursuit. And just to look. They don't have to believe. They don't have to behave. Just invite them to look. And the more you look and the more they look at the life of Jesus, I'm convinced that they will find, as they continue to look into Jesus, the answer to the question that yes, unequivocally, undeniably, Jesus is God, the one and only God. He is the only God who loves you. He loves you even when you are unlovable. He loves you in all your sin and all your shame and all your shortcomings. He loves you. He's the only God who's near to you. Near to you in your triumphs as well as your trials. He's a God who loves you not because of what you do or who you've become or who you're becoming. He's a God who loves you simply because he created you and he desires relationship with you because he's a good father and he's a loving father. And he loves you just as you are. He loves you because you're you. But let me tell you, he loves you too much to let you stay as you are because he has so much more for you. And he is the God who sacrifices for you. And one of the most beautiful things about this pursuit we're on this year is we pursue Jesus together. And so we get to pursue the one who has already pursued us. The one who came for us and lived as one of us, lived amongst us and died for us to save us from us. So friend, I just wanna invite you to join me each day this year and to pause from all the distractions, even for just 15 minutes, to pause from all the distractions and all the noise And take some time to just look, to just look at Jesus. So I'm convinced if you do, he'll keep changing your life. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God worth looking at. We thank you that you are the God who has come to us because you love us. That you're a God who is near and you're a God who's willing to sacrifice for us. We don't deserve it, but yet you choose to speak value and worth and dignity into us. So God, may we celebrate you for that. Father, I pray for any who don't know you yet, that they would simply look. They would look into your claims. They would look into your life. They would look at you and they would see that you are the God who loves them, that you are the God who is for them. And as they see you as you are for who you are, as the one and only true God, they would surrender to you and in doing so find the life that they've been dreaming of. 
And God, for those of us who know you, I pray that we would continue to look at you, that we continue to look into your face, that we continue to let this world grow dim as your glory grows greater. And that we wouldn't just know more about you, but we would know you more and more and more and more fully and experience more fully all that you have for us. God, thanks for loving us as you do. God, I pray that the words of this song we're about to sing, that this would be simply our prayer set to music as we proclaim your glory and who you are, the one and only God. Amen.